0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him who is not far from each one of us. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others.
1: Gracious Father, we come, if we're um, honest with ourselves, as desperately weak in your hands, but we know that you, as we've heard this evening, are a wonderful and great God. So please give us those things that we lack this evening the ability to understand what you're saying and the willingness to obey it, because we ask that through Christ's name. Amen. Please do be seated and uh, be taking up your Bibles at the passage that Gordon read for us, page 1113, if you lost the place already. Now, I've been uh, tasked uh, with helping to communicate God's unchanging gospel in different contexts. Crosslinks describes it in our uh, logo God's Word for God's World. And uh, Sheffield, of course, is not a static context in which you, the majority of you, will seek to pursue the ambition to make Jesus famous by planting churches, training leaders, and growing forward. That's the forward vision. And this morning, I drew our attention to some of the statistics and projections for Sheffield. I'm not going to go through them again. But if Christchurch forward is to be a church with that vision to plant churches, train leaders, and grow forward, you will need to take into account the very people that you are seeking to serve. For example, your most recent church plant Christchurch Walkley, also connected with the Anglican Mission in England, uh, has seen a dramatic increase in the number of black and minority ethnic people uh, in the period 2001 to 2011. A growth of 180% from 6,600 to 18,000. Now that's going to impact how Christchurch Walkley seeks to go about its business. And of course, your mission partners, and we've been praying for them this evening, uh, have just the same task in a variety, as we've heard, of different cultures and contexts. So it's really important to work hard at understanding the context. When um, a potential mission partner comes to Crosslinks and I interview them, or indeed actually staff applying for one of our posts, I will always ask them, what is the gospel? And I ask them to try not to regurgitate some potted version like Christianity Explored or Alpha or the Identity Course. But I do want to hear from them what they believe the core essentials of the gospel are. Well, that is good, but how are we to communicate these core truths in different contexts which will, and uh, therefore the approaches may vary considerably. This morning we looked at how the Apostle Paul sensitively, but without compromise, communicated the gospel to what should have been a sympathetic audience of Jews and God-fearers in Acts chapter 13 in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And the results were mixed, not least with the target audience of the Jews, but subsequently, actually remarkably fruitful, amongst uh, the Gentiles, the non-Jews. So a sensitive approach to a particular context is no guarantee of success. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't try to be sensitive. Well, this evening we're turning to a very different context and one which is perhaps a lot closer to the reality of 21st century Sheffield. For it was a context with almost no knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Athenian context was a sophisticated, urban, but Christ-ignorant context. This morning, our focus was almost entirely on the message that Paul preached. But here, the passage gives clear indications as to Paul's whole approach to the business of making Jesus known in that sort of context, not just in his message. So we shall look at his whole approach to this context with the aim of learning how we might better approach the different contexts in which we have been placed. Under the headings that you'll find uh, in the notice sheet on the, on the separate white sheet, under the headings of he observed, he responded, he spoke. All neatly beginning with H, those before a bit of a messed one uh, finishing with God worked. Well, first of all, he observed. In Acts chapter 16, the preceding chapter, Paul had had a vision of a Macedonian man begging him to come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse nine of chapter 16. And they had concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel to the Macedonians. And the main places he visited were Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. But the opposition from the Jews that we heard about, if you were here this morning, meant that Paul was escorted to Athens in the neighboring province of Achaia, where he was left alone whilst he waited for Silas and Timothy, his companions, to rejoin him. Now, Athens, even though it's well past its prime, was a significant cultural centre of the Roman Empire and would have been one of the first cities to have had a lonely planet guide for tourists with its citadel, Acropolis, temples, including the newish one uh, dedicated to Augustus Caesar, who had visited Athens shortly after his victory over Mark Antony. But what then did Paul do whilst he awaited his colleagues from Macedonia? Well, he didn't bed down in the local Holiday Inn. No, we're told, verse 16, he saw a city full of idols. Athens was swamped with them, submerged under them, forested by them. So many they were. And it's no doubt they were outstandingly beautiful, with many different materials of gold, silver, ivory, and marble, Uh, verse 29 indicates that that might have been the case and impressive no doubt in their artistry you only have to go to the British Museum in London uh, to get a sense of what they must have been like because we've taken most of them and put them in the British Museum well this was clearly more than a glimpse from his balcony as he got an impression of a city littered with idols And he says in verses 22 and 23 that he saw that in every way they were very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Well, this analysis of the situation would have only been after careful observation. And this reminds us of an essential remit of the church that seeks to make Christ known, and I take it that Christ Church is one such, and that is to observe our context carefully so that we know and understand it. John Stott, um, uh, Anglican leader of the last century, said this: we listen to the Word with humble reverence, anxious to understand it, resolved to believe and obey what we come to understand. We listen to the world with critical alertness, anxious to understand it too, resolved not necessarily to believe and obey it, but to sympathize with it and to seek grace to discover how the gospel relates to it. Now, some people are naturally observant, but there are tools that can help us to analyze the culture of a person or a group. A culture may be defined as a patterned way in which people do things together. And we are largely unaware of our own culture, but we can see it in others. And uh, if you look at your uh, handouts, you will notice what is called the onion model of culture. And it's very easy to look uh, at behavior. That's the most visible manifestation of culture. And then, as you go closer to the center of the onion, values, beliefs, and eventually worldviews. Well, I've left with uh, Paul, um, uh, Paul German, some copies of of this little leaflet that we've produced on understanding or exploring culture. They are questions to ask in, in a way of discovery what culture is all about. Now, these can seem quite clumsy to us Brits, But my experience is that non-Western cultures are actually much more open and much more keen to talk about such things than we Brits are. The important thing is to observe and to ask questions, especially when the contact is new and it's less embarrassing. I visited Ireland last year with a Pakistani church leader, and he got chatting with an Irish guy who said, Oh, my next-door neighbours are Pakistanis. Oh, really? What, uh, What can you tell me about them? Oh, I've never spoken to them, but their child is at school with our daughter. Well, immediately, we dropped everything, and it was 10.30 at night, not a time when most people in Northern Ireland would consider carrying out a visit next door, and we popped next door. It was in the middle of Ramadan, so they were breaking fast in the middle of the summer, and uh, we ended up having a meal with this Pakistani couple, and we prayed for them in front of them. It was an immediate opening, an interest or something like that. So Paul observed... Secondly, he responded, and he responded in different ways, different phases. Look verse, at verse 16. He was greatly distressed, we're told. The word here is one which, from which we derive the word paroxysm. That may not mean a lot to you, but it's the kind of convulsion that is associated, I'm told, with a spasm or a seizure or an epileptic fit, and far from being impressed, therefore, by all the impressive decor and artistry, Paul, we're led to believe, was appalled at the idolatry. An idol is any person or thing that occupies the place which God should occupy. And that caused Paul great distress, It was the same reaction as the Lord himself had with the whole golden calf episode in Exodus when the Israelites aroused the anger of the Lord, their God, in the wilderness, Deuteronomy chapter 9. Paul was jealous for the honor of God. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer and we pray those words, Hallowed be your name, we are asking for the honor of the Lord to be upheld and vindicated. Well, I would ask each of us, and I'm asking myself as well, do we have that concern for the reputation of the Lord Jesus? You see, it's a very powerful motive for mission. Yes, we evangelize because people need Jesus. Uh, A sister uh, organization called London City Mission has just that logo, because London needs Jesus. So we, of course, evangelize because... Uh, People need Jesus. The gospel is good for people. And yes, we evangelize also because that is true love of our neighbors and friends. If we perhaps help people but do not give them the gospel, then we are uh, risking, uh, and, and we are risking giving them a cup of tea making them feel warm and comfortable for a few minutes whilst they are on their way to a Christless eternity. But most important, more important than all those motivations, is the upholding of the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we offer Christ as if he's one of a number of options that people might choose to follow. But if he is who he says he is, he deserves the supreme and only place in the affections, not only of us, but actually of everyone in the world. Now, we Brits tend to be too live and let live. If something works for someone, then we perhaps shrug our shoulders, but a concern for Jesus's honor will spur us on, as it spurred Paul on. A non-Christian relative of mine, after visiting Turkey, came back and made the uh, observation, well, they're all happy to be Muslims. Why bother them? Well, I'm not sure that Robin and Lorna, uh, working from this congregation, would agree with that sentiment. Secondly, Pope Paul was not only distressed, but he acted on his distress. We're told in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, place day by day with those who happened to be there. Feeling the great dis- distress was not sufficient. Itself, It needed to be acted upon. And so he went both to the synagogue, which was his normal first point of call. And uh, we, we saw an example of that this morning. And perhaps he employed the same methods that we saw this morning. But Luke chooses here not to focus on that again, but rather on his outing to the marketplace. Day by day, we're told, to reason with those who happen to be there. This was more than a groceries market, this place, but was also the center for social and cultural life in the city. He reasoned and he argued with them, which suggests more of a two-way conversation than the kind of sermon that I'm preaching now before I run off to Manchester later this evening. No, this is a a much more of a, a conversation that's going on. This is much harder work because it means defending one's own convictions from the questions being put, as well as having the opportunity, hopefully, to state one's own. Well, the point is, uh, he did something. Probably unplanned, but he did something. And he deliberately went where people were meeting. This, of course, led him to being taken on to the Areopagus, the more formal setting of the governing council where decisions about religions were made, whether to sponsor a new temple, to add to the many others that they already had. And Paul fully sees that unexpected opportunity. Most of those people would probably never have visited a synagogue to hear what was going on. It is, and it's great, isn't it? When our church is put on events and missions, as I know you've been uh, doing over the years, but we must recognize that not everyone will come. We need to be going. And Paul went out to where the people were and were more comfortable. How are we at praying for and seizing opportunities to engage people where they are? Jesus died for them just as much as he died for those who are prepared to enter buildings such as this one. Your mission partners in, uh, in this country, in Ireland, in Cambodia, in Singapore, in Hungary, are the results of an intentional desire by Christchurch Fullwood, Fullwood to take the good news to people who will never come to Fullwood. Your plants in Central, Gleedless Valley and Walkley are also results of that same desire. But it's no good going and sitting in buildings waiting for people to come. Well, it's not easy to be so intentional, whether it's ethnicity or religious affiliation. Human beings are quite wired, aren't we, to be suspicious of things we don't understand. For example, spiders. For many people, the thought of a spider immediately makes us balk. And that reaction may actually, in some countries like Australia, help protect us from nasty things. But that kind of instinctive reaction is not good when it comes to people just imagine a situation when I walk along here I walk up to a Muslim woman fully uh, clad and I proffer a hand because that's what we English do if we're wanting to say hello well it's likely to be that the reaction is going to be one of recoiling she will no doubt draw incorrect conclusions about my forwardness and her recoil in horror causes me to draw incorrect conclusions about her, that she's not interested. Well, that is where observation and analysis are so important so that we can do things that will be appreciated rather than rejected. So we've seen, first, that Paul observed, secondly, that he acted or responded. Thirdly, he spoke. It may seem as though I've left the vast majority of our passage until right at the end of the time that I have with you. So we'll hardly do much justice to what Luke seems to consider is very important. And that is true. And much more could be said. But I'm wanting to show how Paul engaged with a Christ-ignorant culture to help us in 21st century Sheffield. So I'll briefly point to a number of features of how and what Paul said when he did speak. Notice a number of things. First of all, uh, notice this. Paul spoke. We spoke about it earlier when I was interviewed. It may seem obvious, but there is a tendency amongst 21st century Christians in Britain to lack confidence in the power of the word of God. Some would quote what is often ascribed to Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary use words. Now whether or not he said it, it's not true. The gospel must be spoken as well as lived out. In Crosslinks, we have people engaged in all kinds of contexts doing different things, but they share a core conviction that the verbal proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is indispensable to mission. Without it, no one will come to know the unique Jesus and be saved. How then? Paul says to the Romans can they call on the one they have not believed in and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard and how can they hear without someone preaching to them we must speak and Paul does that secondly what Paul spoke was as the core of his message it has been said that Paul leaves Jesus until right to the end of his speech, to the Areopagus. But notice why he was taken to the Areopagus in the first place. Look back at verse 18. It was because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The Stoic and Epicurean philosophers were puzzled by this thinking that he was advocating foreign gods, perhaps Jesus and Anastasia, which is the Greek for resurrection. So Paul was focusing on Jesus, his death, because without a death there cannot be any resurrection, and resurrection. In our communication of this wonderful gospel, it is essential to get people to Jesus, his death, and his resurrection. Notice thirdly, Paul's sensitive flexibility. His rhetorical style followed the style adopted by local philosophers. He gained a hearing, verses 22 and 23, by using the fruit of his observations to build a bridge, the altar to the unknown God. He stated his desired goal, his thesis in verse 23, this thing about which you are ignorant is what I'm going to proclaim to you. He gives proofs to his thesis in verses 24 to 29, before concluding with an exhortation in verses 30 and 31. You see, he was prepared to use sources that they would have been familiar with. This morning, it was the Old Testament for the Jews. Tonight, it was the quoting of the Cretan philosopher Epimenides and the Stoic philosopher Aratus. Again, fruit of his background work, The sort of thing that mission partners will be doing all the time. It takes time and effort. But they are the things we need to be prepared to do if we are to reach the Christ-ignorant context of 21st century Sheffield. Notice fourthly, Paul's non-negotiable firmness. Plenty of Christians today are wobbling into saying that we need to be more flexible on biblical truth. Quoting a recent poll on a particular issue, one person who claims to be an evangelical said this, these figures, these percentages, confirm what many of us have known for some time, that the Church of England leadership is seriously out of step with its members and even more so with society at large. To which the answer is, so what? The Bible makes clear that Christ's followers will be out of step Paul was also prepared to say that his hearers were ignorant. That's not a very PC thing to say, is it? Paul does not does it nicely, maybe, by picking up, in verse 23, on the Athenians' self-assessment in having an altar to the unknown God, but actually it was a stinging rebuke to the sophisticated elite of the cultural capital of the Roman Empire. You are ignorant, he says, And at the end, in verse 30, he tells them that continued ignorance is actually culpable. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, he says, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Well, that's not designed to win friends and influence people, is it? There's a cost to being a disciple, and the apostle is clear about that up front. And he is also prepared to state the negatives as well as the positives. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands, you who've done just that. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands, which is just what you've done, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Having picked up on the poets who we've quoted, seen quoted, who said, we are his offspring, verse 28, he goes on to say, therefore, we should not think, just as you have been thinking, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul draws on the resurrection to make his challenge, and it is a command, not an invitation, it's a command to repent. Because if Jesus has risen, and is therefore alive tonight, that confirms that he is the judge that God has appointed who will judge each and every one of us here this evening and around Sheffield and the world tonight. Paul spoke. He spoke of Jesus, his death and resurrection. He showed sensitive flexibility, but also with non-negotiable firmness. How do our evangelistic endeavors match up Well, finally, and very briefly, uh, God worked. This last point is just a reminder of who it is who does the work. There's a danger, isn't there, of fixating on what we have to do and how we are to do it, when it is God who does the work. Some have said that Paul's evangelism in Athens was ineffective, but we read in verse 32, yes, of course, some sneered, Others, however, were inquirers and said, We want to hear you again on this subject. When I heard the good news of Jesus Christ in July 1975, I responded immediately. But for others, it can take time. Some believed in Athens that day, and for that we praise God. But it is only by the grace and the work of God. I said earlier that Paul was waiting in Athens for Timothy and Silas to return from Macedonia. And by the time they did join him, he'd moved on to Corinth. And even before Timothy arrived with good news from Thessalonica, where he'd been up in Macedonia, the reports from that church were ringing out, we're told, around Macedonia and Achaia. Quote from 1 Thessalonians 1 They tell how you. Turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you see the similarity between his message in Thessalonica and its response and what he's saying here in Athens? Evidence, if we needed, that idolaters can repent and believe. I was one and believe in this one true God that Paul was preaching in his gospel with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Well, we've seen something of how the apostle approached the Christ-ignorant idolaters of his day. He observed, he responded with jealous concern for the glory of God, and by engaging with all who would listen, wherever they were, when the opportunity arose, he spoke the core truths of the gospel with sensitive flexibility and non-negotiable firmness, and God in his great mercy did a marvelous work. May that same sovereign Lord, who is alive and reigns today, do the same in 21st century Sheffield as we seek to engage with a Christ-ignorant culture for the sake of the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. Moments silence whilst uh, we consider our appropriate response. Father, we thank you for the model that we have seen in the Apostle Paul, but we thank you most of all that you chose, in spite of his weakness, to work through him in that pagan, idolatrous city, and that there was fruit from that. And we pray, in spite of our weakness now, that you will do that marvelous work in and through us for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.